0: and fish can coexist peacefully. Read my lip. And then we're going to Washington, D.C. to take back the White House. Ah! I love the poorly educated. We're the smartest people. We're the most loyal people.
2: I really want the ability to start a sentence with I hereby order and have it mean something. That would be great. God, that would be fun. I would use it in every single sentence during the day. <laughs> I hereby order a cheeseburger. <laughs> <laughs> One just appears. Yeah.
0: <laughs>
2: uh, funny things. Um, hi, guys. It's Barstool Politics. I am your host, Nick McGuire, joined as always by Dr. Bill Muck from North Central College and Dr. Phil Barker from Keene State College. Hi, guys. Hey, Nick. Hey, Nick. Hi. Uh, before we get started, all the usual fun stuff. Uh, if you guys uh, like the podcast, uh, have questions, comments, beer suggestions, uh, want to see what we're up to, uh, follow us on Twitter at Barstool Paul, P-O-L, Facebook at Barstool Politics. Uh, beers that we try, you can find on Untapped on iOS or Android. And the podcast itself, uh, Spotify, iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play Music, most major podcasting platforms. Uh, so review us, share us, like us through all of those fun things. Uh and then we are partnered with uh Predicted, which is a uh, real money political prediction market, pretty much a stock market for politics where you can buy and sell shares in future political events. Uh we were talking before we started recording. Um I think Elizabeth Warren's gonna be she's gonna be the thing. Surging. She's gonna be it. Yeah. I'm making I'm, big I'm money. I'm gonna on dump Elizabeth some money. Her. Yeah. yeah. Making yeah. money. I really wish I would have done that earlier. Um but what's great for our listeners, uh, listeners who use the uh, promo link when opening up a new account will receive up to $20 match on their first deposit. So for example, if you open up a $20 account, predict it will match that $20, uh, giving you $40 to use on predict it. Um, excuse me. Wow. That's really carbonated. Um, like I said, use the, uh, promo link org slash promo slash Barso Paul 20, uh, to check that out. Yeah. with breathing, um, High Lord Trump, making proclamations and and things he should probably be worried about in the context of foreign policy and, and you know, the world being on fire and whatnot. Bill, can you give us a little rundown of yeah. what the hell happened over the past it, week? It sure has been one heck of a week. So let's start Friday
1: when Trump escalated his trade war with China, tweeting, quote, Our great American companies are hereby ordered to immediately start looking for an alternative to China, unquote. Trump also spent time Friday morning attacking Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell, tweeting the question, quote, who is our biggest enemy, Jay Powell or Chairman Xi? Uh, that's a good question, Nick.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, we
1: could talk about that. <laughs> the markets did not like this though, and instantly went into a tailspin. With the Dow Jones finishing the day down six hundred and twenty-three points. I mean, he had that 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 big of an impact. But if we're honest, this was only the tip of the nonsensical iceberg. Let's review, shall we? This was a week where Trump demanded that Russia be reinstated the G eight. And that they were only thrown out because Putin, quote, outsmarted Obama. He once again joked about serving more than two terms in office, threatened to release detained icy ISIS fighters into Europe, talked about how much the El Paso and Dayton shooting victims loved him, and suggested that he was going to remove birthright citizen, citizenship via an executive order. Order. Oh, and let's not forget the story that broke this week, alleging that on multiple occasions, Trump has suggested that we drop a nuclear weapon on hurricanes to prevent them from hitting the United States. But he winked. That's right. The he wink winked. is the key. <laughs> All right. And remember that it was just last week when Trump called himself the chosen one and canceled a trip to Denmark because the prime minister wouldn't sell him Greenland. Phil, I'm not sure what to make of any of this. Maybe we can start with Trump's attack on the Fed chair and his threat to order American companies out of China. That's still okay with the constitution, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. It's totally perfectly normal. Yeah. Yeah.
0: As you were going through that incredibly long list, I I was, I was jotting down other things that were like as crazy as those things are, there were none of that. You didn't even mention the whole bed bug fiasco in which there's the report about his, his Doral resort that has bed bugs, how he is wanting to hold the next G7 summit at his resort, (laughs) <laughs> and claims that that was an unbiased like just like that the you know they did a search and it's the best one um the he's attack he was attacking fox news today like when you're turning on fox news that's not good <laughs> Um. Yeah, and then we were talking about like how he's he's. There's a report out today. There's two reports out today. One of which is that uh his loans from uh, Deutsche Bank are co-signed by Russian oligarchs, and that yes. um uh, and he's he's gonna say something crazy in response to that. Uh, yes. Yeah. And then, then already the story about how he's promised to build the wall and will pardon anyone if they have to break the law to get it done. Um, it's unbelievable. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. One week. <laughs> right. Right. So I don't know. I, I mean, I, um, I, I mean, we can start with, with, uh, I, there's so many aspects of this that we can start with, uh, before we get into the specifics, I, a, a question that came up to, for me this week. And as I was reading this, that I was thinking about, um, is your sense that this is Different? Is this is this is, is somebody turning the volume up on Trump's kind of you know manic, crazy uh, you know allegations and tweets and whatnot, or is it just that this is normal? This is the way it's been for you know two and a half years, and we just forget what it you know the crazy shit that was happening six months ago. I, I, I'm kind of torn. Like this yes. feels different. It feels uh, it feels like this is it's coming faster, but it doesn't yes. feel necessarily all that different in you know, content than, than what we've gotten used to.
1: It, I saw something interesting written this uh, last couple of days that said the one difference now versus previous, you know, iterations of this was that he used to have one enemy. So for a long time, it was Muller. And everything was directed at Mueller. And before that it was Hillary Clinton. So that provided some clarity. And all of it was bizarre and strange, but it was, you know, laser-like focus on one enemy. And he's really good with that. And it feels as if he's trying to find some new enemy to target and he's just flailing. But it's it's not normal. It is there's nothing about this that is reassuring. And I think we finally entered the world where there are real consequences to his busy, bizarre behavior I mean the stock market dropping six hundred points is a is a real indicator that the the global economy doesn't like this the The trade war with China is going to have some real implications very very soon, so this is it, it's not so funny anymore because he's now in a place where
2: these indiscretions are going to have real impact follow up when yeah. was it funny hey. <laughs> well, you're right. The hurricane thing's kind of funny. When were there not real consequences <laughs> well, to any of that?
1: Well, some of this was just a show early on, right? He would say things, but it didn't matter. But when the stock market and, and you know, the they've done, they show when his tweet comes out and
0: how quickly the market right. just plummets. Uh, I mean, uh, go he, ahead. He's his own worst enemy on that, right? I mean, mm-hmm. I, he the. His support amongst his base is, is really strong. We've talked about that, you know, amongst Republicans, he has 80%, some odd, 80 some odd percent approval. Um, but he also, when you look at like presidential elections and what is predictive of presidential success and re-election, a strong economy is the best thing he has going right. So all the other stuff, the craziness and whatever that, that makes people kind of turn away his policies. Aren't all that popular, right? I mean, the, when you, when you do polls, the, 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 you know the American people aren't supportive of his immigration policies and and stuff like that, uh, but if people are are making money and are you know doing okay and jobs are are there, then he's you know there's a, there's an argument that he's going to be okay, um, and he's creating the disaster that he's trying. He's I, it feels like. He's trying to avoid some sort of disaster, right? It's like he he's it, if I were to project onto him, it feels like he's panicking, right? He's trying to prevent this, trying to uh, keep this th- these things from happening, whether it's economic downturn or scandals or whatever. But he's creating the problem that he's avo- trying to trying to avoid. If he would just be quiet on some of this stuff, it would be he would be so much better off. That's a great point because it feels as if he he thinks he can
1: talk his way out of this. Like just one more attack on Jerome Powell, one more tweet about releasing ISIS fighters in Europe, and I'm going to be in the clear, but it just makes it worse and worse and worse. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I I don't know where he goes from here, but unless until the Democratic Party has a particular nominee, he's not going to have one individual to hone in on. Because, you know, Joe Biden at this stage, it's not clear he's going to be the nominee or award and like none of those are sticking
2: yet. I, I mean, I feel like we've had this exact conversation probably I I don't know, too many times, Yeah,
1: 30 times. Right. Mental state of Trump conversation. Right. Yeah, But
2: I I mean, literally, the the thing that we start with in in a lot of these podcast episodes is a laundry list of things that he's done over the past week. So Mm -hmm. as much as I think that this was a particularly bad week, I don't think that this is a a major aberration from what we've seen over the past two and a half years or so. Um, I do think that there is some element of people trying to ramp up potential stories in the media to make it uh, more pronounced than it, than it is. Um, and realistically the stock market is purely speculative at this point anyways, and made up the gains that, that it lost previously. Um, I, like I, I, I don't, I, I have no idea what his purpose is in doing any of this, but it's this, this to me, just looking through it, like I, and we've talked about it previously. We've we've become accustomed to this, and and nothing in here really really shocked me that much. The quantity was a little yeah, nah, but nothing in there seemed super out of it, the ordinary. It does seem like
0: it does seem <laughs> quote like it's, unquote. It does seem like it's kind of factored into the equation, and it, to some extent, right? If you're a Trump supporter, nothing he did this week is going to turn you mm-hmm. off to him, right? I mean, there's nothing all that mm-hmm. different. Um, if you didn't like Trump, it's not like it's not like you were you were you, this convinced you I, it does it does feel like we've we're familiar enough with him and have put him in this category enough that it's not changing minds the one thing that does seem uh, the, the other thing that I come back around to in some ways is we've talked a lot over the two and a half years that he's been in office um, about at least early on the role of the adults in the room, right? The people who could sort of constrain him or limit him. And we've talked over the last year about how those people have slowly been either pushed out or got fed up and left. And the the end result is that he doesn't have that the kind of professional um, group around him and people who are are as familiar with the political game or with, you know, government. Um, and, and, you know, the, part of that is that it, there are people who don't want to do this job, right? The people who are willing to work for Trump at this point are, are uh, it's a, you know, a shrinking subcategory in some ways. But the other part is Trump's not appointing people, right? So we've, you know, throughout the cabinet, there's lots of interim appointments and, and whatnot, but it does feel like, It's if Trump is amplified, I I feel like he is amplified a little bit. Like I feel like this is more kind of manic or crazy than it than it typically is, and I I don't know what's causing that. But I think that's also you know uh, magnified even more by the fact that there aren't people around him, you know, taking him off of Twitter or telling him to shut up or 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 or, I don't know, trying to keep him him on 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 something else. But there have never been people that even when there
2: were adults in the room, there was there's been very little focus in the past two years, two it's and a, a half. It's years. a matter of degree. You're right. Sure. Uh, this week, it struck me the breadth of issues that he hit on
1: is revealing because even one of these, I mean, let's the one that strikes me most and it didn't get any attention was when he threatened to release the de- detained ISIS you know, individuals we have into Europe. So long story short, he basically wants these European countries to take ownership of the ISIS individuals that we captured and bring them back to the host countries. And the European countries are like, "Mm, not really. Uh, And so to solve the problem, Trump is threatening to say, well, release them in Germany and France and whatnot. That's not no no. You can't do that, Nick. But right? They're
2: they're, they're 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 citizens. What are you talking about?
1: <laughs> right. So like that one in and of itself is really bizarre. The nuking hurricanes is bizarre, and so each one of these the the breadth of all of them, you go like, what's going on in his head? And y- you're right that it's a the same conversation that we've had, but the each new I don't know each new wave seems troubling.
0: I do feel like if he had somebody around him uh, that uh, th- there's some level, uh, you know, it, it may be total bullshit that this is the case, but when you have political handlers or politically savvy people around you, you can uh, sort of tempt tamp down some of these crises. The hurricane is is a good example. When the story breaks that Trump has talked multiple times about nuking hurricanes, um, the first thing he does is go to Twitter and tweet about how that's a made up story and that never happened or whatever, which just adds fuel to the fire. You know, it seems like if if you don't talk about that, if you don't tweet about it, that story, I mean, it, it feels like that story went away in three days, but it feels like that story would have gone away in one day if people, if he hadn't kind of jumped on board about it. And, and I don't know. I, I don't know how I feel about the fact that if you're a savvy politician, um, you can avoid these sorts of things. And Trump's not a savvy politician. That's part of what is appealing to him about appealing about him to people. But um, I don't know. It, it's again, it's, it's more examples of sort of self-inflicted wounds, I think.
1: Well, think about the role that Hope Hicks used to play. I mean, Trump really liked her. I, she had a calming effect on some of the Twitter behavior. And he still did Twitter. He still engaged but she would nudge him one way or the other. And it kept some of this more bizarre behavior from getting out there.
2: Kind of. Yeah. I mean, uh, realistically we had fire and fury back then too. Like that we had really, yeah, really good right. quotes back then. Like you that guys a, forget all the crazy shit that that happened. was an official
0: speech. That wasn't even Twitter. Was it? Didn't oh. Wasn't that a UN oh, speech? Right.
2: That's right. Wasn't it? That was the UN yeah, speech. Yeah yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: yeah. You're right. It does. The other one, you know, yeah. Nick, what somebody should do is like, this is a great you know, thing for political scientists is to kind of gauge what the nature of his Twitter and speech has been over time. Are we seeing ups and downs in terms? You could, you could measure all this. Yeah.
2: I, I mean, I, yeah, I, I, there have definitely been ebbs and flows throughout the, the, the term, but I like in terms of clearly a lot of the stuff, he he's just, he's said on Twitter and it's, it's out there, but it seems like, especially in terms of the nuking hurricanes thing, like there's, what are you supposed to do in that situation? People, the, not major, nuke her oh, yes, <laughs> obviously he didn't nuke. He's not nuking this one, so it's not happening. But well, when major news outlets are reporting on this, and there's no. Real, there's no specific source that's saying this. Like, what are you supposed to do? Do You do just let it go
1: at that point. So, yeah, I think that's a really it's a good question because let's say you're in that room with Trump, and this has been something that's come out. Individuals around Trump, when he says things like this, don't know how to respond. Apparently, one of the the newspaper accounts said that he brought this up, and the second time, I don't know if it was FEMA or who it was that were with him. Uh, they said, you know, they, what they say is Mr. President will look into this and then they walk out of the room and they go, what the hell are we, you know, what are, right. what are, we, what are we supposed to do with this?
2: Um, do they corroborate that with whoever was in the room? Well, it, I, the, I think there's enough the accounts where, where, you know, some of this has to be true. Yeah, that's my point is that I I have no doubt that a lot of this is true, but I have also no doubt that some of this is being um, exacerbated sure. or, or overblown. Yeah. It, it, I, and, and we don't know what it is. It's fine. Fifteen truths and a lie at some point. Yeah. Like, I, I I don't know what's what's truth anymore. Right. I,
0: I do think that the stories are important in some ways, though, because I, so the the Axios or whoever did that story, the the journalist came out and said he he stands by his story that he had multiple sources at who at, at different points said that this this occurred. Um, we've talked about before about how Trump has this tendency to sort of float an idea, and then when it doesn't go over well, he backs off of it pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, I, it's it, it, while I think it's kind of crazy that this is the the topic that's out there, but it, that that Trump is considering nuking hurricanes. But in in some ways, maybe it's good, right? You you float the story, and Trump realizes that uh, hey, that's not going to fly, right? He's tanking a poll more it's, than anything. It's not better
1: than a president who wouldn't <laughs> That's a good point put nuking hurricanes on the table. <laughs> As you were talking, Phil, it made me think a little bit about when Trump first started the campaign he didn't have a coherent vision and at these events these rallies he would throw stuff out there and and what he ended up settling on were the things that stuck yeah. and it feels like this is where we're at right now although it's us policy so he's throwing all of these things out there to see which one gain traction uh, both you know among his base but also just create discussion and debate he doesn't mind I don't think he minds that people are discussing him nuking hurricanes, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that's, that's a tension which he he enjoys. Yeah. Can, yeah.
0: can we take a minute to just step back and consider the, you know, so many crazy things happen with the Trump administration that I think sometimes we don't appreciate just how crazy something is. And I feel like we should step back and appreciate the fact that the President of the United States claimed that the, the chair of the Fed is a bigger enemy than Chairman Xi, right? Than the, 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 the leader of China. Like, that is that's in that's that's when I say insane. I, I'm not. I don't necessarily mean that Trump is insane, right? In the context of like political history and what has come before, that is like, like it's hard for me to wrap my head around that. And that <laughs> that is just like uh, you know we just moved on. That's something else that that we're gonna put in the long list of well, we weren't expecting that. I think that plays too, though. I mean, realistically, in terms of in the context
2: of the conversation that you're having in terms of China being a currency manipulator and not playing by standard economic rules, people who see the Fed changing interest rates when supposedly the economy is doing exceptionally well seems to be putting the brakes on something that we don't want the brakes put on. And I think that plays well with a lot of Republicans. So it might, again, not be the most nuanced way of saying something. But I think the central point there still has major effects.
1: But there is real. I mean, the reason why the Fed chair is independent is is the democracy realized over time that we need to have somebody at the Federal Reserve being completely separate from any sort of political influence because otherwise, I mean, this goes back to Nixon. Nixon tried to do this. He tried to influence the Fed chair as a way of ramping up the economy for his reelection. And we, everybody decided that's not a good thing, Democrat or Republican. So, So Trump's relentless attacks on the Fed are really, really dangerous. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering whether when Powell pushes back, right, he's You know, he's been very, very restrained, but there may be a John Roberts moment soon where he comes out and says, there's a real reason why we have an independent fetch I mean, basically, scolds or shames Trump. I don't think he wants to do that, but at some point, he's got to, doesn't
0: he? Yeah, I mean, I... uh... That's hard. Yeah, uh, ideally, he shouldn't have to, right? There should be other people who are stepping up. There should be Republicans who are stepping up and saying this. That you know, that again, that, that having an, as we've talked about with other institutions, having an independent Fed is a good thing. When so, if you're a Republican, you might not like the policies that the Fed is currently implementing. But when the Democrat is president, you don't want the Democrat to be able to choose economic policies. Having having policies, you know, monetary policy that is tied to. Whoever is in office is a bad idea. Monetary policy. It's Venezuela. Right, monetary policy that is just popular, right, is also a bad idea. You want monetary policy that's correct, regardless of whether it's, it's um, popular or not. I mean, it strikes me that if we went back to one of the previous episodes, we've talked about when Trump first started tweeting about the Fed. That in and of itself, just saying, you know, lowering or raising interest rates is a bad idea, that in and of itself was a huge story because that was kind of unprecedented. The Fed is left alone to do their thing. and And here we are now. I mean, maybe this is you know, why it's important to start speaking up early., uh, but uh, you know, here we are now where he's he's saying that the chairman of the Fed is a worse enemy than China. that it's just it, it it's problematic. Is, <laughs>
2: so you're saying we should get rid of the Fed so we don't have these yeah, issues. Something anymore. like I that. I agree. Yeah. <laughs> um, to, to go back to one of your earlier points, Phil, um, you know, we look at this laundry list of things and we say, yeah, like realistically anything on this list, it doesn't seem like it would affect uh, uh, the Republican base or, or a lot of Republican voters at this point. Um, and I would assume uh, the same is is true for the other end of the poli- uh, political spectrum. They assume this is going on, and they hate them anyways, and nothing is going to change their mind. What what would it take at this point? And, and again, we've talked about this ad nauseum over countless podcast episodes. Um, what the hell would it take to make a difference well, at this point? I will say it it
1: it's early, but it does feel like there are there are certain cracks. In, in the Trump campaign right now, you're seeing like Joe Walsh now his campaign, there's a number of uh, individuals running against Trump who are willing to say and be open in their critique. And, and one of the things that Walsh says is that when you talk to Republicans behind closed doors, they say everything that we're saying. They're freaked out. They're upset by Trump's attack on on the the Fed chair. They're troubled by his tweets, but they can't do for political reasons, come out and say this publicly. So you wonder whether there is a tipping point. And I know, Nick, you're going to say like, we've been talking about the tipping point forever. <laughs> and I, I think that's right. But you wonder at some point, is there not exhaustion with Trump? And I feel like there's there might be some uh, there might be some people getting tired of this stick. It's the same thing over and over. And remember, the election is still, you know, a year and a half away. This is going to – we might just, as a democracy, be tired of this Well, it, by the time the election rolls and, around. And it
0: feels like there are different – there are multiple different tipping points that you can look at. Um, there's the sort of institutional tipping point in which the Republican party turns on him or sitting senators turn on him or suddenly support the idea of impeachment. It doesn't feel like we're anywhere close to that. Uh, no, but no there's no. another tipping point, which is sort of a public opinion tipping point. Right. And I, I think about when, when Jake LaHutt was on the, on the podcast and we were talking about, you know, which Democrats can sort of pick up uh, the, the Obama Trump supporters or whatever. And he, I think correctly pointed out that really it's just a turnout game at this point. It's about what, you know, how enthused are Democrats and how likely are they to turn up, how enthused are Republicans and how likely are they to turn up? And that's there. I think there's a sort of a hidden or unseen tipping point that occurs there. If you have enough Republicans who are, you know, they're Republicans, they're not about to vote for a Democrat, but they they just can't take more of this, you know, are they less likely to show up and vote? And that, you know, we, that's not something that we can necessarily see at this point. That's something that we'll see maybe evidence of in polls as we get closer to elections. But, uh, you know, that's, that's where there might be change happening in ways that aren't, you know, surface level, all that visible.
1: Mm-hmm. One metric of this is we've talked about this previously, all the Republicans who are not running for reelection, that might be a good way of, of, of measuring and metric of what's going on here that they're pulling away. And I think you're right that there are multiple tipping points. And one of them may be enough Republicans saying that it's okay to criticize Trump. Uh, that it's okay to push back on him. It's okay, maybe not to show up to vote, and we're not there yet. But that
2: that may happen. I, I don't think it's going to happen. Yeah. I really don't think it's going to happen. And the other thing that I, I feel like we we we've this whole thing is just about what we've talked about previously, and 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 it's very true. But in this this age or era of political tribalism, realistically, there's no benefit to to doing any of that. And, and there's realistically, it's not about getting a a nuanced, you know, agreed upon policy through it's about whether your team wins or not. And the best way to get your team to win is to make people feel (laughs) fearful, fearful of the other team. And both parties are exceptionally good at that now. And I feel like it's as much as this is potentially detrimental for. Yeah, I'll say fairly educated people on both ends of the political spectrum. The other things that, you know, come out on Twitter, uh, whether you're talking about from Democrats or Republicans or things that you, you see on major news outlets that stoke mistrust and and fear of the opposing political party are infinitely more potent than anything that the president would would say that would influence something. And the Republicans are not going to expend their political capital to say, yeah, I, I mean, you know, we're, we're going to be. Principled and and um, you know willing to to take the hit on this to to save an institution. Nobody's willing to do that at this point,
1: which suggests that if the Democrats were smart, and we'll get to the campaign stuff in speed round, you maybe pick somebody like Joe Biden who is more appealing to that Republican voter to win. Yes. No. 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 I'm I'm thinking if you're if you're a Republican. And you're not real pleased with Trump. And you look at the Democratic side and you look at some of them, what you perceive to be more extreme candidates, the Warrens and the Sanders. You're like, oh, I can't do that. You know, Biden is, you know, sort of a Republican in some ways. Right. That might be a more
2: tolerable vote. I don't I think it'll be tolerable. I don't think it'll be effective. I, yeah, I, I, I really think we're be I think we're beyond the pale at this point. Ooh. I think you have to. It's a dark place. Nick. It's a very dark place. <laughs> it's it's not. It's not the political strategy for this time. Yeah. You need to make people fear for their lives at every at every turning point. And and, and it's it's a horrible place to be but I think that's what it
0: is. So I don't, I I know I'm not not as cynical as Nick about it, uh, but I do think that the conclusion, Nick, is correct. I don't, I don't think that uh, I I can see the idea of, uh, but it it feels like this is what Democrats do. Democrats get so focused on winning over the moderate Republican that they sort of miss the bigger picture and, and, and quit worrying about that, figure out what your party wants and what your base wants. And, and I don't think, you know, I, I feel, I feel bad for, or, or I'm sympathetic to, the sort of never Trump Republicans, right? If you're, if you, if you're a Republican and you, you know, on policy issues, can't agree with Democrats, but Trump is sort of destroying or in your mind is destroying institutions and norms and what that you value. That's a tough place to be, but I don't think that Democrats should put their hope in those people, right? The Democrat and in, in those sort of Republicans. I, I, um, I, we can talk about, we'll talk about Joe Biden in a minute.
1: Yeah yeah okay maybe that's a good transition sure should we talk beer yes phil what is that that ipa you're drinking it's a double
0: ipa it's a so this is a treehouse beer so it's been a while since i've had a treehouse treehouse is the the brewery in western mass that doesn't distribute and you have to go stand in line for a long time to get one i don't do lines but i luckily i i know people who do wait in lines so um uh (laughs) <laughs> uh yeah so this is their hurricane it's their double ipa um it's not a super strong it's like seven percent seven and a half percent alcohol by volume which isn't you know like all that in your face um th- this is really good i like this uh it's um we were talking before we came on the air that one description i read described this as having a creamy mouthfeel which is just the worst combination you
1: fucking took my thing down. <laughs> <laughs> sorry
0: it's a terrible description uh it's a terrible combination of words but it's actually a pretty a pretty good description of this um it's, you know, it's, I don't know that I would have necessarily thought it was a double IPA if I were drinking it. It's, 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 uh, pretty mellow. It's, it's not like crazy over the top citrusy, but it's got those kind of IPA flavors, the bitterness. There's like a tiny bit of like bitterness that comes kind of in the after aftertaste of it, but it's really smooth. It's really refreshing. I, I like it. I, I give it two thumbs up. I'll have another. That's my rating. Right. <laughs> One of the things Tom
1: has taught us is that a good double IPA is really good, mm-hmm. but the bad right. ones are awful. So this sounds like
2: it's in the, it's in the former category. You're going to need a, a, a shirt or something with Phil. It just oh. says I'll have another yes. two thumbs up on it <laughs> right. with Phil picture <laughs> on it. Nick, what are we enjoying? We are having a, uh, a juice God, a hazy IPA from 1090, which is out of, uh, Glenview, yeah. uh, just North of us, which is where I drove from, um, every day for an hour and a half to two hours. Um, It's, it's really good, actually. It's, um, yeah, it's, it's, um, what's the word? It's, yeah, I mean, it's hazy, like it says, but, uh, it doesn't feel overpowering. Right. It's not super hoppy, um, uh, compared to a lot of, you know, heavier IPAs that we've had. It's got a a little bit of sweetness to it, which I think kind of curbs the, uh, the, uh, the hoppiness. Um, I like it a lot. And it's got a cool little 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 jackal anubis guy. Yeah, on that's there a weird. That's a, yeah. It's an interesting
1: yeah. little artwork on there. No, I enjoyed this one a lot too. And there's there's a fair amount of hazy IPAs that I think are all similar. This was you're right. It was, it was there was a little bit of juice to it, but it moist, wasn't if you will.
2: It, mo- it had a moist
1: mouth, a good feel. mouth feel to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh but it, it didn't hit you over the head with the hops. i know i I enjoyed this one. this was uh seven percent alcohol, so you know it's got a little kick to it mm-hmm. uh yeah, solid beer,
2: yes, yes uh if you guys want to check out the beers we have on the podcast, um like I said at the beginning uh find us on untapped on i o s or Android, just look for barstool politics and you will find all of our reviews on there, speed around, yes. All right, we return to
1: one of our favorite segments, Phil's campaign corner. For new the listeners, our yes, for new listeners, our very own Phil Barker just happens to live in New Hampshire, and in his role as superstar political science professor, gets to interact with presidential candidates when they come to campus for a campaign event. This week brought Democratic frontrunner, former Vice President Joe Biden to keen state uh and if you happen to read a reuters or new york times article about the event you know that phil barker was interviewed and quoted in the article what?
0: new york times
1: oh this is good stuff <laughs> <laughs> so phil tell us about your assessment and what it was like to be at bines uh,
0: yeah so i mean i'm hoping we can we can do this more as we move forward because it's as the fall semester hits they're going to be candidates everywhere andrew yang was on campus uh monday i didn't get to go to that event but uh did he give you a $1,000? I, I $1, wish. <laughs> um, but a lot of st- – like, students don't always turn up to these things, but they were there for Andrew Yang. They're, they're on board. Um, Beto is going to be on campus in a week and a half, so hopefully we can talk about that. Bill Weld, who's one of the guys who's primarying Trump, will be on campus. So, uh, But, yeah, so Biden, this was – he's, you know, the biggest name of the uh, – he's the biggest name in the race, right? So he's the first – he's the biggest name to come to campus. Um, so he – it was – he, uh, had a, a kind of a rally outside or his event was outside. It was this beautiful New Hampshire day. He couldn't have asked for a better setup. Um, I, 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 Okay. Some of the things that surprised me about it. He was the first one of the, you know, eight candidates that I've seen that didn't do kind of this New Hampshire interactive, like take questions and and kind of, you know, go back and forth with people. He had teleprompter set up. He got up there. He, he read a speech, you know, he, he taught, he had it all laid out that makes sense from a front runner standpoint, but we've talked about this kind of conservative approach that he takes. Um, And I, it's just not, I just don't think it's going to sell with new Hampshire people. It, It felt, I turned to, you know, Kelly, my wife was with me. And I don't know, as with all candidates, he was, or with most candidates, he was like 30 minutes late to, to get on stage. And as he started talking, I don't know, 10 minutes in, I turned to Kelly and I said, this feels like a, a, like a sad sermon that I heard in church when I was, you know, a kid, like it was just, it didn't seem to have the energy, um, And so I, I, again, I kind of understand that strategy, but I don't think that long-term it's going to be a successful strategy. And I think evidence of that, the turnout was surprisingly small, like a Saturday morning event in on a beautiful day. In New Hampshire, where people take this seriously, and I the, I don't know the actual numbers, I so I they were in different venues, so I can't 100% say, but uh, I would feel pretty confident saying it was smaller. It was a smaller attendance than uh, Elizabeth Warren or Kamala Harris when they were on campus, and so I, um, you know, that was one of the things that the reporter when when he called me was asking me about like how you know this question of electability, which is sort of on a lot of people's minds around the country. I think it's on the minds of New Hampshire voters, but I think it's one of many, many things. And I, and I, I don't know. I was, it seemed kind of, um, it seemed a little sad, the event. But that's not the kind of, that's not the vibe
1: you want to put out when you're trying to run for president, right? I mean, think about the, you know, say what you will about Elizabeth Warren, you may like her or dislike her, but there's energy and she's, I mean, she, what is she 70, right? I mean, she's able to generate that energy, Bernie Sanders is is an older candidate able to generate an energy. And now I, I don't know if he feels shaky. I feel, uh, just
0: to, Go to, ahead, to, in his defense, the the events, the like before and after events, the the interactions with people, he stayed, he shook hands, he took pictures, that stuff. I I think he does really well, right? But 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 the the big picture thing that you see is a pretty stark contrast to some of the other uh, candidates. Mm-hmm.
2: I, I I mean I. Throughout his entire campaign thus far, it, it, it seems like he's never they've never really kind of coalesced around a, a a good campaign strategy. He's just he's the guy that's supposed to be there. He's the anointed one again, and they they found another one, and they've they're they're not doing well with it. Um, not to um you know go back to my point where everything is is fear and we're all doomed and you know life doesn't mean anything, but um yeah the the other candidates in that field have have infinitely more interesting um quote-unquote ideas compared to biden he's very middle of the road at a time when middle of the road isn't doing favors for anybody which realistically this should be the perfect time for that but it's it's just it's it's not working um on top of the fact that he's 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 a, he's a centrist who's extremely old, not extremely, but he's very old. Yeah. Um, and seems to not be able to, um, present himself in a way that is endearing to a lot of potential voters. Um, I, I don't, I, I don't know. Like I, yeah. I stick by, you know, what we said at the beginning of the podcast, I, I think Elizabeth Warren has a, a much better shot at being the, 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 the candidate at this point. Um, and, and uh, uh, several other candidates are, are you know, um, contenders who realistically probably shouldn't be at this point. Well, and th-
1: there are things that Biden is still good at. So at the event, so Jake uh, tweeted out a, a little video clip of Biden interacting with somebody with, with an individual who's a stutterer and the way in which Biden engaged that individual and said, I want your number. He talked to him briefly and said, but we should talk more. And it felt genuine. It felt authentic you walked away from that thinking like Biden is a really good person, but it doesn't necessarily make him a good candidate. Right. The other thing I think about is that some poll numbers have come out today and they show Biden as you know, defeating Trump. But what's interesting to me is that not only you know Biden is up 54 to 38 on Trump, but uh, Sanders is up 53 to 39. Warren is up 52 to 40. The more and more that Democratic voters feel like these non-Biden candidates could actually yeah. beat Trump, There may be a broader movement, to your point, Nick, to somebody like Warren to say, like, she seems like she's got it together. There's momentum there. I saw something this week that said at this point during the 2008 campaign, Hillary Clinton was still dramatically up. Mm -hmm. on Barack Obama and Barack Obama was seen as like, you know, there's he'll he'll run a good campaign, but there's no way he can defeat Hillary. So there's still a lot of time. I I still I,
0: I this is me beating a dead horse. I talk about this a lot to other people, and I'm sure I've talked about it a lot on here as well. Um, I Biden's lead is all about name recognition. The polls that get at name recognition are shocking. The number of people who don't know who Elizabeth Warren is like to me as a political scientist and as a political nerd, I I was shocked before the election that people didn't know who Elizabeth Warren was. But solidly into this kind of campaign season, it was like 25 percent of Americans knew who she was. Most people know who Joe Biden is. And as Joe Biden plays it safe, that works until Americans start figuring out more and more information about Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders or, you know, uh, Pete Buttigieg. And as they public Kamala Harris, as they publish plans and policies, that's going to eventually erode. You know, there's a lot of evidence that that big support for Joe Biden was never strong. It was a lot of people who that was kind of mm-hmm. their default choice. And and I feel like the others, unless Biden changes his approach, the others are going to be able to poach those voters pretty quickly. I, I would I would fairly yeah. confidently bet um, Biden's not going to win New Hampshire. I don't I, I'm I don't know that he'll win Iowa and that he can survive that. But that's going to it's going to really kind of shake up the race and yeah. change how people think about it and talk about it, I think.
1: Mm -hmm. So quick aside, so I just got a text message from my son, Fisher, and he said, Andrew Yang is at 13 cents. That is madness. (laughs) That is madness. So so Uh, those unpredicted. I love Fisher. By the no. (laughs) All right. Should we move on? Uh, Donald Trump created some unease at the G7 by asserting that it is time for Russia to be readmitted to the group. Apparently, the disagreement led to a heated exchange at a dinner on Saturday night inside the Seasides Resort's 19th Century Lighthouse. Nick, I want to have a dinner inside a lighthouse. Uh, According to diplomatic sources, Trump forcefully argued that Vladimir Putin should be invited back five years after Russia was ejected from the G8 for its annexation of Crimea. Of those around the table, the only the outgoing Italian prime minister offered Trump any support. Shinzo Abe of Japan was neutral and the rest, including UK's Boris Johnson, Germany's Angela Merkel, Canada's Justin Trudeau and the EU Council President Donald Tusk and the French President Emmanuel Macron, all pushed back firmly against the suggestion.
0: Even Johnson. That's when you've lost,
2: I know. As I noted
1: earlier, lost Boris
0: Johnson. That's a bad <laughs> yes, sign. <laughs> that's
1: right. <laughs> Trump's m- mischaracterization of Russia's expulsion from the G eight, suggesting it was Putin that he tricked Obama, isn't the real reason. Uh, Phil, are, what are your thoughts about Trump's idea of allowing Russia back into the G
0: seven? Um, so I. I'm I'm an institutions and a norms guy, right? I mean, this is for listeners; they're familiar with that. And from that stance, letting Russia back in is a, a, a terrible idea. I mean, some of the if you go through and look at some of the kind of final decisions or resolutions that came out of this this meeting, uh, for instance, one of them was critical of Iran that basically said that Iran should never have nuclear weapons. Um, I, if Russia is involved, that probably doesn't happen, right? That that changes. So. Part of it though I, I mean the G7 was originally founded I mean the whole idea originally was about economic coordination um, amongst the the seven large well I mean this is the seven largest advanced industrial economies in in the world. so there are other countries that have bigger, you know, GDPs than some of the members, but, uh, I, yeah, China, Brazil, India are all above Italy, I think. Uh, but the idea is that these, you know, these economies are advanced industrial economies. They're technologically and economically advanced. If the whole goal of the G7 is truly just economic, you know, discussing economic policy, then there's no reason not to let Russia in. Right. They kind of meet the criteria. But the G seven has evolved to be more than that, right? I mean, it has evolved to be this this uh, this gathering of world leaders who who sort of shape or talk about discuss the direction of of international politics, and that takes on the importance of norms and democracy and all these other things. If that's the case, then absolutely not, Russia shouldn't be involved. So I, I guess the in, my end point is it depends on what role you want the G seven to play, right? If it's just purely economic, not such a big deal. But if it's going to play this kind of world leader, like sort of norm entrepreneur like it's going to play a role in shaping how we think about the world then letting russia into that uh would be not a great plan
2: nick any strong feelings on this one way or the other um i'm generally a uh, burn the uh, institutions and the norms to the ground kind of guy <laughs> um I mean, you bring up a good point, Phil. Like, realistically, this is supposed to be in in economic um, conglomerate of of industrialized nations. The, the you know the supposedly most industrialized nations. Uh, <laughs> Phil is bouncing, <laughs> <laughs> <I can't. laughs> um, but. it, 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 it Realistically, I I don't think that Russia should should necessarily be a part of the group. But if they are going to move into more of a kind of global foreign policy, um, institutional norms, kind of uh, uh, a globalized system um, uh, mantle, um, then there should be a lot of changes made to it. China should certainly be uh, amongst one of the most influential members of this. But realistically, if, if there's if this is the thing where this is the group of people that are. You know, uh, 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 asserting their dominance in terms of industrialized societies and and, and economic um, um, prosperity for a globalized system. I, this is this is outdated at mm-hmm. this point in, in in my opinion. I think it should be disbanded, for lack of a better term.
0: Go ahead, Bill, you haven't had a chance to talk. I heard things comment, that strike
2: yeah, yeah. well, I just two two things that strike me about this.
1: One is that this feels like an institution where Trump doesn't have a friend. And that's why he wants Putin back or or somebody who sees the world in a similar way. He struggles with these European allies uh, and Putin would be somebody that he could sidle up to. And so, you know, he wants a friend. The other thing is that I, I totally agree that this institution isn't as consequential. You know, we know Russia's views. I mean, there are other venues where Russia, you know, we know what Russia thinks about things. But there are reputational elements to this. And Russia hates To be excluded and reputation matters here. So I think it's valuable, even though the G7 isn't all that significant, to keep them out because it's a sign to say within this European institution, you don't get a seat at the table. No girls allowed. That's what we're doing. Exactly. It's our
2: clubhouse. You can't come here. Right. That's what it
1: comes down to. No Putin. And that will upset Putin.
0: And maybe it changes his behavior. Uh, but, you know, I think there's but, there's I mean, The other that. way to think about the other part that I think about, which is coming at this from a totally different angle, if I just think about like foreign policy strategy, this is a losing argument for Trump, right? The the, the other members of the G7 don't want Russia in. Getting Russia back in is not likely to happen in the next year and a half, right? Before the next G7 summit. So it, it, for, for Trump to spend his political capital trying to get something that is not ever going to be accomplished just seems like a weird approach, right? I, there are other things that Trump would like to see done. Use your political capital for that. Recognize that this is not the audience for this message that we should all embrace Russia. I, I don't get why it, it, from that sense. Right. Why is he the one that's sort of you know carrying Russia's water at this meeting? Russia's not not going to get back in with this group of people. So why spend your time trying to get that? Instead, realize that that's that's a lost cause. Even if you even if you like agree, even if you one hundred percent think that Russia should be back in, it's a lost cause. Figure out what other things you want to accomplish and focus on those. Mm-hmm. Use your political capital to try to accomplish those other aspects that that you that you might actually have a chance of of, of gaining.
2: <sighs> no. <laughs> <laughs>
1: what what happens if Trump does get the next G seven meeting at his Doral resort in in Miami? And even though Putin is not a member, <laughs> he invites Putin to hang out. Right? That's the sort hey, of thing laugh, I can but totally impossible, Right? Yeah, he's like, you know, he's not a member of the G seven, but you know, we just thought he could be here. I mean, Macron invited Rohani, the president of Iran, to be there. I'm sure. Oh, this this could be good, Nick. Mm, yeah, that would be juicy. All right, Nick. <laughs> we've talked about the world is on fire, so let's talk about real fires. Over the last week, we've seen story after story about the devastating fires across the Brazilian Amazon. More than 26,000 forest fires have been recorded in the Amazon rainforest this month, the highest number in a decade, setting off outrage and calls for more protections. The forest absorb a sic- significant amount of the planet's climate warming carbon dioxide. So, you know, it matters. Uh, it was a major topic of the G7 where the world's richest countries pledged a whopping 22 million, eight, 22 million. That'll st- do it it's just that's nothing problem solved right but whatever it was it was something mere hours after the announcement the brazilian president jair bolsonaro, bolsonaro angrily rejected the offer and told the rest of the world to mind their own business eventually bolsonaro said he would accept the international aid to help the fires but that french president emmanuel macron must I will first accept apologize your to him. but only if you apologize <laughs> first <laughs> so, so this is great At a deeper level, the fires raise important questions about sovereignty and whether Brazil alone has the right to dictate the care or non-care of the Amazon. Phil, sovereignty is the cornerstone of the international system. We talk all about it in our courses, but increasingly, the international community faces problems that transcend sovereign borders. What's your sense of this Brazilian example and what it suggests about the ability of the international community to confront trans-sovereign's big Um, word
0: problem? Yeah. uh... (laughs) Yeah. This could be like a whole semester. as a lot. lot. <laughs> so, you know, I'm teaching international law uh, this semester, and this is this is the classic example. Whether it's international law or, or international relations or whatever, this conflict between um, sovereignty: countries have the right to do whatever they want within their own borders. No one can tell them what to do. Um, that conflict with these collective goods problems, right? Things, collective action problems, things that everyone has to act towards to solve. I mean, it's the heart of all international relations, right? How how do you address economic, uh, you know, free trade is this collective goods problem. How do you get countries to cooperate when, when it's in their self-interest not to, how do you get countries to cooperate on the environment when individually it's smarter not to, um, the, the part that I think is interesting about the Brazil example is that, you know, one of the things the international community has done with environmental issues in the past, uh, or one way of trying to deal with this is through privatization, which is kind of a strange thing. But, you know, when the, when the oceans are being overfished, one of the solutions was to extend sovereignty. So the U S up to 200 miles off its coast is the, they are, they, they have the sole economic right to exploit that, which means that if you want to fish off the coast of the United States, you have to get a permit from the United States. And the U S has an incentive to protect those fish, because if you just allow everybody to fish the hell out of the waters, then you don't have any money long-term because the fish are all gone. So uh, I don't know if that makes sense, but it creates an individual incentive to actually, you know, uh, manage your resources. In theory, that should be playing out here, right? Brazil should recognize that by managing the Amazon, they can make money for a really long time, as opposed to you know cut all the trees down in a short period of time and make a lot of money in the short term. Um, but Bolsonaro's different, right? <laughs> he's he's different in this approach. Um, yeah, I mean, I I don't I don't know. I I, I am not I'm not uh, overly cynical about the ability of the international community to cooperate on these things. Um, but I am somewhat cynical, especially if you have someone like Bolsonaro who doesn't care about international law or international norms. Um, there's not a whole lot that can be done about it.
1: He hates the rainforest the way that Trump hates windmills, <laughs> right? Don't I mean it's yeah. So yeah, it, those, wind, those windmills have been a nuisance <laughs> for far right. too long. Nick, you, you, one of the issues that motivates you more than anything is, is
2: climate change and the environment. So I, I'm yeah. curious about the fuck are you talking? No. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, realistically, I, I, I had brought this, this topic up before, you yeah. know, w- when we were looking for topics for this week and I, I, you know, my initial kind of glance at it was this is, this is terrifying. This is awful. You know, the rainforests are the, the lungs of the world and 20% and blah, all these statistics and whatnot. And you dig a little bit, a little tiny bit deeper, and it's a slightly more nuanced than that. Um, realistically, in terms of, yes, I agree. This is uh, climate change and environmental protectionism. This is something that the world needs to to absolutely be uh, pay more attention to. But in terms of international institutions trying to enforce some sort of regime over what we should do, I don't think it's effective. I think when it comes to specific environments and and biomes and how we protect our environment, it's still a very local thing you're going to be infinitely more effective at telling most of the the fires that are that are occurring in the in the Amazon are from extremely small farmers. This is not an industrial thing. they're clearing pasture land for you know cattle to graze, and they don't realize that doing that the soil itself is, is extremely uh, nutrient deficient and they plant something and then they have to rip it up and go somewhere else because there's, there's not enough nutrients to to do anything. Um, So, you know, having this, this weird kind of, globalist international response to something that should be a very local concern telling people that there are better ways to do this you can farm more effectively in the areas that you're in you don't have to expand into these areas that have you know historically been protected areas especially you know areas that uh have not necessarily uncontacted but you know uh, tribal societies that that don't necessarily ascribe to modern society um you don't need to move into these areas you can be completely content and not have to feed into what you think is going to be beneficial in the short term. Um, because it's just, there, there are different ways to go about it. And I feel like the narrative that is being presented is not the right narrative mm-hmm. that we should be saying from an institutional standpoint, you can't have, you know, five different industrial, uh, seven, seven uh, different industrialized countries in different parts of the world saying you need to do this and we're going to give money to the Brazilian government to fix the problem where that's never going to go to where it's supposed to go to when you can do, you can have an infinitely greater benefit uh, for a fraction of the price if you show people that there's a different way to live their lives there. I I just, it's this... Hmm. It's the institutional's argument or institution's argument.
1: <laughs> I, would, I would come at a slightly. different. I don't disagree no. with that. What I would say is that so in Phil and I, when we teach international relations, we talk about tragedy of the commons, this idea that when you've got a commons, it's rational for individuals to exploit that commons. And, you know, your individual rationality ultimately leads to collective ruin where you destroy the environment of the commons. So I'm going to sound like Phil. I really think it is about norms here because I, don't, I think you're right. Nick, it's not institutions. The G7 isn't going to change Brazil's behavior. It really is going to depend upon states realizing or or, are being shaped by the norm that the environment matters. And we have to think long term about that. And if that doesn't occur, you know, sovereignty is a really powerful thing. And it's, it's not going to be overcome by institutions. So until there's this broad wave of accepting that everybody's collective interest is served, through protecting the environment, we're screwed. And and I'm afraid that norms are not powerful enough to overcome those, you know,
2: constraints of sovereignty. Here's the thing that I would... I, I was just yeah. going to say, I, I ahead, think Bill, norms sorry, I can be powerful lot, enough rambling. to
0: overcome that, but I don't know that they will shift quick enough uh, to, to address the problem before the problem That's becomes true. unaddressable.
2: Which we're
1: increasingly aware of. It, it has to be quick. Yeah. Maybe. Maybe.
2: Maybe. Yeah. I, I, my... Um, I lost my train of thought. I, I I'm just eh, never mind. You well, love lo- windmills, Nick. <laughs> and you love the environment. Let's burn it all down and just put windmills That's there. Right.
1: All right, let's jump back. Well, I guess we were staying international. This is great. Lots of international topics. So <laughs> with the G7 of France this last week, all eyes were on France's charismatic leader, President Emmanuel Macron. In fact, some were arguing that Macron has emerged as the new, quote, leader of the free world. He's yeah. French. An article in Political this week noted that Macron's JFK style was a reminder that U.S. presidents used to be the ones giving stirring speeches about liberal democracy across Europe. Macron's embrace of liberal internationalists internationalism stands in stark contrast to trump who identifies much more comfortably with right-wing nationalism um, macron has essentially stepped into the vacuum created by trump's abdication of america's historic role as keeper of the liberal and democratic flame speaking <laughs> this is good stuff nick yeah. speaking last week to the european parliament macron warned of a Euro- warned of a european civil war and urged the European Union to defend liberal democracy against the surging tide of illiberal nationalism faced with authoritarianism and that surrounds us everywhere. The answer is not authoritarian democracy but the authority of democracy, Nick. Oh, Oh, fuck off. No, Macron, I'm very pleased with you. (laughs) Uh, Phil, it's stunning to me just how much has changed during Trump's tenure. What's your read of Macron and whether he's up to the role of leader? Uh, So there's
0: there's a a number of points to make about this, one of which I think is that, you know, the article you you cite from political people who talk about how this used to be the role that the U.S. played. I think they're absolutely right, right? The U.S. people used to look to the U.S. as the leader of the free world um and we had this kind of moral authority that we we like to claim, whether that was proper or not we've talked about on here about you know for all the all the citing of u s as this moral authority we've done lots of really terrible things but um so i think that aspect that the u s isn't playing this role that it use that that we're comfortable or familiar seeing the u s play as this kind of defender of western liberal democracy um i think that's a hundred percent right and the, and the extent to which uh, that has shifted under Trump. Right? That's not a partisan thing, right? Whether it was Obama or Clinton, or whether it was either of the Bushes or Reagan, this kind of rhetoric that came from the U.S. president was different before than it is under under Trump. Um, and I, I get that people, you know, Western journalists look at Macron like the stuff that he said in this speech is is great. It is the sort of stuff that a, an American president would have said in the past. But I also feel like this is, uh, you know, I'll I'll side with Nick on this point, and that this is, I think, uh, the the West. This is this is media seeing what they want to see. In some ways, these sort of arguments. I I don't Mm -hmm. think that Macron is the new leader. I mean, Macron in order to be the leader, you know, to be the spokesman for the Western world, you have to be able to be the spokesman for your own country. And the man has gone from 70% approval in his country to like 30% approval. He started bouncing back. He's, he's bounced back from the low point, you know, a number of months ago during all the protests, but it's hard to say, you know, it, it doesn't appear that, you know, it, it is by no means certain that he would win re-election. It's maybe doubtful um, to say that he's the new, you know, flag bearer of Western, Western democracy, I think is a, is a bit of a stretch. I think the core of those arguments about how this is what the US, the U S used to be and the nostalgia about that. I think that's all right. But I think, I mean, that is all correct, but uh, the sort of dumping it on Macron is probably a little, uh, uh, uh inappropriate. Phil mm. teed
2: you up, Nick. <laughs> <laughs> Good. Um, yeah, <laughs> He's an ass. He's he's just an ass. Like realistically, Emmanuel. He's, yes, <laughs> he's an erudite elitist prick, and, and and I he's he's never been more than that. Like I agree, his his the sentiments are absolutely true, and 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 would be in in the context of you know a, a different time period. Absolutely, something that an American president would say. But this this what we're talking about hasn't been. The American mo since probably the end of the Cold War, probably since since Reagan at that point. In my opinion, I I, I don't think there has been a a moral authority to U.S. action since the late eighties, early nineties. At this point, we've been exceptionally influential since then, and our culture has permeated a lot, you know, cultures around the world. But from an an authority standpoint, I I I'm not necessarily sure. I don't. ascribed to that mentality. Um, yeah, I, I really think this is an example of, to Phil's point, um, people look, looking for something to fill a void. Um, and it just, it isn't there. He happened to say something good at the time and it's a, a not so subtle dig to, um, you know, to, to Trump and, and current, um, you know, Uh, uh, U.S. political affairs, but this is nothing. This is a flash in the pan. Emmanuel Macron is not the leader of the free world. He's French. They can't be the leader of the free world at this point. I'm sorry. It's just not physically possible. I should point out (laughs) Nick is wearing a yellow vest right now. (laughs) (laughs) How many weeks straight has there been been protests? Yeah.
1: You know, I'm not going to disagree with both of you because I think you're right. You know, it's not the same when this comes from France. And I, I, I give Macron yeah, all the credit in sure. the world for trying to make this argument and for trying to turn the G7 into a conversation about the way the world used to be run and the, the good Someone elements of Someone needs to be that. making so the argument that if good. it's not the
0: United States. Yeah,
1: You're Exactly sure. right. And especially given that Angela Merkel is on the way out. So she's no longer that voice. And I, I'm wondering who will be that voice. I'm glad that he's at least trying to seize on on that space because if if it wasn't for him i don't know who i mean shinzo abe i mean no no i mean there's nobody else who's going to emerge to to take that role so i, I think you're both right it's got to be the united states matters we play a dramatic role in the world and when we walk away there are consequences and you know good for emmanuel macron for trying but yeah it's it's not
2: the same i i mm-hmm. I, I mean who Never mind. Yeah, I'm going to I'm going to do it again. Okay. (laughs) well, that's good because this is going to go off on another trail that we don't need to go. This leaves us more
1: time to talk about tan suits. So (laughs)
2: do you you know what
1: today is? Today is the five year anniversary of when President Barack Obama showed up for a White House news conference (gasps) dressed in a tan suit. The the horror! Yeah, I, I know <laughs> you will all remember this became a matter of national emergency as conservative and cable news networks across the spectrum obsessed over this unpatriotic act for days. Like you know, Phil, you mentioned earlier that the news cycles are like three hours. We talked about this for days. The tan suit, reporters and political commentaries went uh, commentators went berserk, outdoing themselves with puns like "Yes, we tan," and the audacity of tope. Style experts said the suit was terrible and a true monstrosity. Some conservative critics noted that khaki is the style, um, a sort of wishy-washy color, neither white nor brown, and was a reflection of Obama's (laughs) wishy-washy military policy. New York Congressman Peter King was particularly upset and stated that, quote, I don't think any of us can excuse what the president did yesterday. (laughs) King noted that, quote, ISIS is watching. (laughs) And if you were the head of ISIS, if you were Baghdadi and you were any uh, or if you were anyone in ISIS, would you come away from yesterday afraid of the United States? Oh, five years later, (laughs) Tansuit Gate has come to symbolize the relative lack of scandals during the uh, Obama administration. And some say proof that Obama, Obama was held to a different standard than the current president. Phil, you wear tan suits almost exclusively. He's literally wearing one right now. Five years <laughs> removed. What is your assessment of Obama's tan suit? Uh, I mean,
2: Why the ten gallon ham I'm from
1: Texas? That's, no that's, a, that's the question. Uh,
0: yeah, I mean, it, it's, this is it, it is insane, right? I mean, it, it is reflective of how different things are um, today. And, and yeah, I mean, the idea that this shows that there was a different standard for Obama, absolutely, right? There was a different standard for Obama. It's we've been living in the prison, right? We've gotten used to we've gotten used to the the craziness of of the um, of the day. I mean, to me, the if the argument had been uh, that, and and as some of some people were arguing that you know it was not. respectful of the Oval Office to wear a casual suit. It's insane that that's the case, that that's the argument. But even if that were the case, right, Mm -hmm. you could then argue that, uh, well, Trump hasn't worn a tan suit. He hasn't been disrespectful in the same way. Um, but, uh, it just reveals the hypocrisy of it, right? Because the argument was about respect for the office. And if you're going to critique somebody for wearing a tan suit as disrespectful of the office of the presidency, and then you move on to Donald Trump and dismiss things, it's, it's, yeah, it's crazy. It it is also a statement about the nature of the news cycle, right? We talked about all the crazy. So the opening topic, the 17 different crazy things that have happened in the last week um, when there's not a whole lot happening, that's, you know, crazy. This can, build this can take up a lot of time it also shows the problems with the 24 hours new news media and that you need something to talk about and so if nothing's going on we'll talk about tan suits for a week and that's just stupid Mm -hmm. that's not an opinion that's Mm -hmm. a fact (laughs) 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 yeah it's it's ridiculous. Like,
2: I, I, I understand he was Obama was so known for wearing realistically two suits. Yeah. It was what a dark navy and a, was that a charcoal suit because he didn't want to make decisions. Right. He right? didn't want yeah. to make decisions. I, mean, I wanted to whittle down decisions because I have so many other decisions to make in the day, even the way that he eats, apparently. Um, it's, yeah, it's ridiculous. It's, it's a suit. I don't care. And there have been plenty of other presidents, you know, immediately previous to him that, that wore tan suits. Nobody should give a shit about this. Um, in terms of, uh, of, of scandals and saying that there's a, 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 dearth of, of, of scandals in the Obama administration, I think that's patently false. And that's complete bullshit. Uh, Benghazi, uh, Pakistan, Yemen, um, Syria, uh, the Arab Spring, pretty much all of North and Sub-Saharan Africa at that point. Uh, Ukraine, uh, you know, whatever. We'll talk about Obamacare. We'll talk about I- an infinite amount of things. Yes, he was held to a completely different standard than a lot of presidents. Um <laughs> That's all I have to say okay. about that. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, okay.
1: Well, one counterpoint to that, Nick. No. If you look at the number of individuals within administrations who were indicted, right? Like Trump, the, Trump there's a whole bunch of them. George W. Bush, there were a whole bunch of them. Obama zero. And and I'm, it's not to say that it was a perfectly clean administration, but there was a different approach to it. Uh, the other thing, I think this is uh, to both of your points, this is an indictment of both the media, the 24 hour news media, and I think conservatives, right? They, um, Look what you thought was important. It, it wasn't right. This was silly. Um, and then I think to some degree, conservatives attack and, and piling on for this. Then then you get Trump and you look you look hypocritical. It's, it's just, you know, this was silly. It didn't matter. Uh, you know, the Obama administration, it was no drama Obama. Right. There was there was some truth to that. He was a boring guy. And there there was nothing to comment on other it, I mean, than it he is a statement about what suit, I, so, I, I yeah.
0: think there there's some element of what we define as a scandal. Right. Because uh, well, the stuff you named off, Nick were kind of policies. I mean, some of them were, you could talk about them as scandal, but they wouldn't be what we considered scandalous in American politics. Now, should it be scandalous that we're using drones to kill people? Yeah, like that should be a scandal. Um, what suit you wear shouldn't be a scandal. But those are really, I mean, that's again the, the extent to which the media has become not a discussion about policy or what the implications of policy are or, you know, what the outcomes of the policy are, but instead this focus focus on you know what what the latest outrage is we we should be outraged not about tan suits we should be outraged about the mm-hmm. targeting of non combatants from flying robots in the air
2: yeah correct
0: <laughs> true
1: so th- one of my favorite things about the Ob- Obama administration though is as time went by they they embraced this so there was one time when Obama was yeah. giving a big speech and they tweeted out a picture of the tan suit mm-hmm. and like big speech coming up right just yeah I don't know just
2: the, just the troll people yeah I, yeah it's dumb the, uh, the, <laughs> there's so many <laughs> things I want to say on so many of these topics and I just won't <laughs> God it was still fun, Nick. It was. It's always fun yeah. I love talking with you guys. Um, anything else on any of those topics before I stall for a time? <laughs> I think we covered everything <laughs> one could cover on all of those topics. Awesome. <laughs> That's what I'd like to hear. Shut well, on that up. note. Oh, okay. That's the wrong thing that played, but it's still doing it for some reason. Um, regardless, if you guys like the podcast, have questions, comments, um, beer suggestions, anything like that. want to see what we're doing Uh, follow us on Twitter at Barstool Politics uh, P-O-L Facebook uh, at Barstool Politics did I say that? Yeah Barstool Paul P-O-L on Twitter Facebook at Barstool Politics Uh, the podcast, iTunes, uh, Spotify SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play Music most major podcasting uh, platforms, review us, share us uh, like us through there beers that we try you can find on Untapped on iOS or Android Uh, just look for uh, Barstool Politics on there and then uh, we are partnered with, uh, with, a, with Wow, which is a real money political prediction market, um, which is uh, pretty much a stock market for politics where you can buy and sell shares in future political events. Parcel uh, politics listeners who use the promo link when opening up a new account will receive up to a $20 match on their first deposit. Um, so open up a $20 account uh, and you will receive up... Um, uh, and Predictive will match that $20. <laughs> wow, I'm so tired. It's like a beer and a half. It's just no good. Um, like I said, use the promo link predicted. org slash promo slash Paul 20 uh, to check that out. Um, anything else, and so I can stop making an ass of myself. I think we're good. I'm good too. Well, <laughs> to how about you? Oh, thank God! Cheers. We will see you guys next week. Cheers.